Father, we just thank you for your word, and Lord, we just uh, ask you today to show us in the book of Jude this recipe that you have uh, for our souls in order to, to make us the eternal objects of love that you have made us to be, Lord, and, and uh, uh, we just ask that you show us that uh, you're the chef, Lord, and, and we're just your material, your ingredients that you use to, to make us into the beings you want to be. We can't make ourselves Christ-like, only you can do that, Lord. I ask that you just teach us the truths here you would have us to learn, and I ask you to do it by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. If there's anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior who has not been born again, Lord, I just ask that you encourage them with, with, with the great truths that are here and the, the exciting truths that are here, the exciting benefits that there are to knowing uh, Jesus as our Lord. And so, Lord, I can only... Uh, speak the words that you've given me here, but you can only empower those words. So I ask you do that by your Holy Spirit. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, uh, my parents were stationed in Italy, and so at Christmas time, uh, my sister was going to Baylor, and I was going up to school in Mississippi. And at Christmas time, we would get together at my grandmother's house in Texas. And before we left, my grandmother would make us a package. Of goodies and in that package of goodies was something I really treasured there were two jars she always gave me two jars of her pickled peaches any of y'all have grandmothers that made pickled peaches I guarantee your grandmother's pickled peaches weren't as good as my grandmother's <laughs> she made the best pickled peaches in the world and I would take those pickled peaches, and as soon as I got back to my dormitory, when I got back to school, I would open those pickled peaches up, and I would reluctantly share some of them with my roommate. And he had the same opinion of those pickled peaches that I had. I mean, he said, these are the best things I've ever tasted. I mean, tell me how she makes these things. Give me the recipe. And I would say something like, well, I don't really care how she makes them. It's his, her job to preserve them and our job to enjoy them. And uh, so today, as we come to this little book of Jude, Jude, from the very beginning, he's going to start off with, with just a real bang here. He's going to tell us that we are Jesus' preserves, that we've been preserved by him. And what he's going to teach us here is that, is that it's his ingredients and his recipe that prepare us for his pleasure. And it's not for us to know exactly how he makes us Christ-like or how he prepares us for his eternity because it's his work. It's our job just to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, that's not the only exciting thing that Jude's going to tell us in this little book today. So don't let the size of this book fool you. Uh, we're actually going to be in here for three or four weeks. We're not going to get all of this in one day because he's got some really uh, fascinating stuff to teach us in this little book of Jude. I actually think it's one of the most fascinating books in the Bible. And let me tell you why. One of the reasons is we know or pretty sure that this book was written by the brother of the Lord. He was actually, he is the brother of, of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know that? Well, most of the church fathers, and when I say church fathers, I'm talking about those men and women who wrote 
shortly after the death of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the earliest uh, writings that we have about Jesus Christ. Most of the church fathers attribute this to Jude, the brother of the Lord. And you can see why they attribute it to Jude. Because go back with me over to Mark chapter 3. Just hold your place in Jude and go over to Mark chapter 3. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 6, not chapter 3. And if you, just to set the setting, Jesus was in Nazareth and he was doing all of these miracles. And they were asking themselves, who is this guy that he could do all of these great miracles? And then someone asked in verse number 3, if you look at chapter 6, verse number 3, they asked this question, is this not the carpenter? I mean, the guy who we saw building furniture here in Nazareth? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. They said, I mean, why? how is he able to do all of this stuff? He's just a human being like us. He has brothers and sisters. Now, in that list, if you look there at that list of the names that he gives of his brothers, there's James. James is one of the brothers that he had. James is the one who wrote the book of James. And then you see the Greek name there, Judas. Judas is translated into English, Jude. In fact, if you look at the book of Jude in Greek, it is the book of Judas. And so, we are pretty sure that Judas is the one who wrote the little book of Jude. Now, that makes it fascinating to me. Uh, Let me give you a few other reasons why this book is so amazing. Uh, First of all, Jude has one of the highest of Christologies you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And that, that perplexes me a little bit or intrigues me a little bit because here was Jude who had grown up with the Lord. I mean, he was a first-hand witness of the humility of Jesus' humanity. I mean, just think about it. He watched him eat. He watched him drink. Uh, he watched him work as a carpenter. He even watched him go to the bathroom. I mean, the Lord going to the bathroom. He heard him laugh. He heard him cry. And at one point, if you remember, in the Gospels we're told that They thought Jesus was actually going insane. They came to him to get him to stop. But one day, Jude got born again. Now, we don't know exactly when Jude got born again. We know it was sometimes after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But when he was born again, his eyes were open. I mean, his eyes were open to the truth. And he realized that that young boy that he had grown up with was none other than Almighty God. And so when you read the book of Jude, we won't get to those verses today, he, man, he gives this description of Jesus Christ as none other than Jehovah God. Well, there's some other interesting things in here in this little book. In verse number 9, we get this insight into this mystical dispute between Michael and the devil over the body of Moses. They're actually fighting over the body of Moses. I can't wait to explain that one to you. Uh, you might want to read some commentaries because I don't know that I can. 
And then the other thing that I see in this little book, he does something that's taboo. I mean, for homileticians, it is taboo. He quotes from the Apocrypha. He quotes from the book of Enoch. I, I mentioned this a few months back, and somebody dropped a note in the offering box, one of those stealth notes I get from time to time. I love to get those, by the way, if you want to write some of them. But I got one of those notes in the offering box that said, Pastor, you need to stick with the word. Don't be delving into the Apocrypha. And, I, you know, I mean, I'm not teaching from the Apocrypha. I never have taught from the Apocrypha. I believe the Apocrypha has a lots of error in the Apocrypha. But that's what makes it so amazing to me that Jude does quote the Apocrypha. He quotes from the little book of Enoch. I guess it's sort of like if I quote from Mark Twain. You know, Mark Twain is not in the canon, and he shouldn't be in the canon, but he has a lot of clever little truths that he gives in his writing. So from time to time, you might hear me quote from somebody like Mark Twain or Shakespeare, and I think that's what he was doing here, but it is kind of cool that he quotes from the book of Enoch. That gives me kind of a little bit of a desire to maybe go read that book if, if Jude would quote from it. But don't give me a note in the box. I'm not going to be teaching from the book of Enoch. Now, when did he write this book? There's something else cool about this book. He quotes from 2 Peter. We'll see him quoting from 2 Peter in verses 17 and 18 when we get there. So we know that he wrote it uh, sometimes after Peter wrote 2 Peter, and we pretty much know Peter wrote 2 Peter somewhere around 65 A.D., and we know it's probably before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., so he, more than likely he wrote it sometimes between 67 and 68 A.D. Well, why did you write this book? Why did the brother of the Lord sit down, and he didn't write much of a book, but, but it's power-packed with all sorts of good exhortations here, but why did he write this book? Well, let me tell you why. There were a lot of divisions in the church. They were breaking into various denominations, and the reason they were doing that was because there were all sorts of false teachings out there. And so what Jude does in his little book, he encourages believers to once and for all to stand on the truth of the word of God. How many people here stand on the truth of the word of God? You stand on the truth of the word of God because you know it's truth. Now, if you don't even read the word of God, you can't stand on the truth of the word of God. I hear people say, man, I'm a Bible believing. I believe this is inerrant. I believe... Uh, this Bible is, is, you know, God's word, every word of it. And then you mention the book of Jude, and they say, where's that? Is that in the Apocrypha? <laughs> no. No, if we stand on truth, we have to know the truth. And, and Jude's going to tell us to contend for the truth, to contend for the faith once and for all, to be Bible-believing Bereans who search out the truth and then contend for the faith once and for all. All right, now, we're not going to, we're going to get into the book here just a little bit today, and uh, it's a, like I said, it's a great little book, and all we'll have the time to do today is just to look at his greeting, and you're going to see just how power-packed this little book is, just in what he teaches us right here in his greeting. So let's, let's look at what he has to say. Let's read verse number one. He says, Jew, now notice what he calls himself here. I mean, if it was me, I'd say, George, the Lord's brother. You know, the Lord, Jesus, I'm his brother. 
That's me. He doesn't do that. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You know what a bondservant is? A bondservant who was a slave, who was freed by his master. And once he was freed by his master, he loved his master so much that he continued to serve his master. So Jude says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He has set me free. And now I choose to serve him. That's his brother. That's his brother. But yet he doesn't say anything about him being his brother. But he wants you to know he's his brother because he says in the next part, and the brother of James. So you can figure out who he is and the brother of James. And then he speaks to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and they're preserves. They're Jesus' preserves. They're preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting to me, again, that Jude names his brother James. Now, James was a great man in his own right. Don't get me wrong. He was the leader of the church after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He wrote the book of James, so he's a very, very important person. And, and Jude wasn't ashamed to call him his brother. But he, in, in humility, he will not call Jesus Christ his brother because he now knows now that he's born again just who Jesus Christ is, that he's the Son of God, that he's Almighty God, and that no longer is he his brother, he is his master, and Jude is his slave. I mean, he fully understood that Jesus was his creator, his God and his Savior. So much more than his brother. He understood that he was virgin born. Can you imagine Jude pondering those thoughts? I mean, they had the same mother. They had Mary was their mother. And yet, they have different fathers. Joseph was the father of Jude, and God Almighty was the father of Jesus. And yet, they were still brothers. They still had the blood of David running through them, both of them. But he sees him again, as I say, he sees him as almighty God. He sees him as the man, the God-man, who went to the cross and died for his sins to set him free, to set us free. And so he serves him as his master. And look here in the, in the verse that who Jude writes to. Who is he writing to? He's not just writing to everybody. He's writing to the called ones. Who are the called ones? Well, the called ones in Jude's eyes are different from just the called ones. Because remember what Jesus said back in, in Matthew 22, verse 14. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. Do you know how many people in this room have been called by Jesus Christ? Every single one of you. You've heard the gospel here today. Jesus has died for your sins. You have been called. Many are called, but few are chosen. Who are the chosen? The chosen are those who choose to believe what they hear. You hear the gospel and you believe the gospel and you become one of the chosen ones. You become one of the elect. And so he's writing to those who have heard the call and received the call and therefore, they've been born again, and they've received Jesus Christ into their heart. 
Remember what Jesus said just days before he died. It's one of the most heartbreaking verses in the Bible. He's about to go to the cross. He's been rejected by his people. And he looks out over Jerusalem, and and I'm reading from Matthew 23, 37. You don't have to turn there. But he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets that I've sent to you and stones those who are sent to you. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chick under her wings. But watch this. But you were not willing. You were not willing. You were not willing. The call, Jesus came to call all the Jews to salvation. But all the Jews, they heard what he had to say, but they didn't hear it in their hearts. They didn't receive it in their hearts. And you know, you can say the same thing about the world today. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 6 that the, the gospel has gone out into the whole world. It's gone out into the whole world. The world is hearing the gospel. And yet the world doesn't receive the gospel. And so in order to be the elect, you have to receive the gospel. Everybody's called, but the elect are those who listen to the call. And listen to what he says now. Listen listen to the next part of this verse. He says, we are sanctified. We are, he says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the best of translations there, right there. Because the word sanctified that you see right here in this text is not in the better manuscripts. Actually, the word that is used here is a form of the Greek word you're all familiar with, and that's agape. And what does agape mean? It means love, and it means divine love. It means supernatural love. And right there, when you look at the last part of the last part of that verse where it says "preserved in Jesus Christ," really it should read "preserved for Jesus Christ." So I want to read translate that for you so you can catch the power of what Jude is saying right here. But you know what? So, so you'll believe what I'm telling you. I'm going to give you a translation from Kenneth Weist, who is one of the greatest Greek scholars, or was one of the greatest Greek scholars of our time. If you're, a Greek, if, you're a, if you're a Bible student, get you a hold of a copy of his, I mean, just it's used by a lot of pastors, a lot of Bible studies. His work, word studies and from the Greek, New Testament. It's a classic study. Get, you, get a hold of that if you, you want to study Greek, even if you don't know Greek. But, but he makes these translations literally the way they read in the text. Now, I want to read you his translation. Listen to what he says. He says, Jude, a bond slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who by God are in the state, now listen to this, of being the permanent objects of his love. Did you catch that? You're in, if you've been chosen, you are in the state of being the permanent objects of his love. And who for Jesus Christ, for his sake, we've been, for his sake, we have been preserved in the permanent state of being carefully watched over. And then at the end of the sentence, 
to those who are the called ones. If you've been called, you understand what he's saying right there? You catch the magnitude of what he just said? You catch the magnitude of what Jude is saying in this verse? He's saying to those of us who have been called and chosen, we have become the eternal objects of God's love. We are always being preserved by God. For Jesus Christ, that's why we're preserved. We're his preserves. We are Jesus, the Jesus Christ preserves. We are his children. Now, I don't want to bore you with a Greek grammar lesson here, but I'm going to have to. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to have to because there's something here you need to know. The Greek words used here for being preserved and being loved are perfect participles. Let me tell you what that means. That means that somewhere back in the past, and in this case, back in eternity, back in eternity, you were chosen. You were chosen to be his preserves. You were chosen to be loved. You were chosen. And that action, because it's a perfect participle, continues on. It's a continuous action that never stops. And also, let me, this, I don't want to again bore you with a Greek, but it, those are passive verbs. Now, you're like, who cares if it's a passive verb or not? What's a passive verb? It means you don't have to do anything. It means you receive the action. You don't have to do anything to be loved by God. You don't have to do anything to be preserved by God. Let me, let me explain this. This is what he's saying. Back in eternity past, Paul says, we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Why were we chosen by him? Because he knew that we would receive the call. We would hear the call and we would act on the call. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be his objects of the love, uh, his objects of love, and we are being, from that point on, we're being preserved by him for Jesus Christ, for eternity. You know what? That makes some sense to me. Because back in my old days, and I don't want to get any old stories here, but back in my old days before I got saved, I got myself into some fixes that if I'd gotten what I deserved back then, I would have been in bad shape. But God didn't let things happen to me. And the reason God didn't let those things happen to me, let the consequences of what I'm doing was doing back then destroyed me because back then before I received Christ he knew I would receive Christ and he was preserving me I was his object of love when I hated him and he's still preserving me and what's his recipe I mean I'd love to have my the recipe now for, of my, for my grandmother's uh, pickled peaches. And uh, I would love to have Jesus' recipe for how he's going to make me look like Christ because he's got a long way to go. <laughs> but I know a little bit about what, he, what his ingredients are. Well, I'm, more, I'm the, the main thing. But he's got to spice me up a lot to get me like Jesus Christ. So you know what he does? He mixes his mercy and his peace, and his love, by the power of his Holy Spirit. He's doing that for me, so that one day, when I see Christ, I will be 
like Christ. That's why Jude could say in verse number two, look at what he says in verse number two. He says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. How many mathematicians? I know we got Kaylee back there. We got one mathematician. Man, if you're a mathematician, there's a lot of difference between adding and multiplying in there. Man, I like, that's a, remember Peter used that same type of mathematics. He didn't use addition. He used multiplication. I mean, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He doesn't say be given to you, be added to you. He says may it be multiplied to you. Who are the, who's the you here? The, the objects of his eternal love. The, the ones who are being eternally preserved. Why does he preserve us? Well, he preserves me because I really smell good before he got a hold of me. No. He doesn't preserve us because we're good little boys and girls. Why does he preserve us? He preserves us because of his mercy. His mercy. So, you know, you know what that means? That means he's the one doing the preserving. It's his recipe. I don't make myself more loving. I don't preserve myself. He preserves me. It's a passive verb. He does the action. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't want to be good. I mean, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that we're to put off the old man, that bitter, angry, jealous, covetous old man, and we're to put on the new man who is righteous and godly and good and loving and kind and merciful. We're to put on that. But, but, we, we, but that doesn't change the fact that God is preserving us. And sometimes when you're nasty, God is still preserving you. God's the one who does the preservation. We don't do the preservation. It's based solely upon God's mercy. And let me tell you what, when you come to the point where you truly believe that, well, you believe that it's God's job to preserve you. It's God's job to make you more loving. Guess what you're going to have? You're going to have peace. You're going to, you get saved because you believe in God's mercy, and you have peace with God. What's the peace with God that we have? That means that no longer am I at war with God. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that we were enemies of God before we were saved, but now we are reconciled, and being reconciled, we are at peace with God. And guess what? When you're at peace with God, you have the peace of God, the supernatural fruit of his spirit. And not only do you have the peace of God, we have the love of God. The supernatural agape love of God flows through us. So agape love is a gift of mercy. You can't do anything to love with agape love. You can't manufacture agape love. If you try to manufacture agape love, it would be like me putting ketchup on my grandma's pickled peaches. That would make them nasty. And when you try to manufacture the love of God in your life, you, you're just making a mess. You can't do that. It comes naturally by the Spirit of God. But wait a minute, Pastor. Didn't we spend a whole book in 1 John where John said, if you don't learn to love with agape love, then you can't be saved? Isn't that what John said? No, he didn't say that. Y'all weren't listening. I see all these heads going, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's a sort of what he said, but there's a big difference. You can't learn to love with agape love. You can't create agape love because it's divine love. It's supernatural love. It's part of Jesus' own recipe for your soul. And when you try to mess with that recipe and do it yourself, you're going to make a mess of things. What John was telling us back in 1 John was that if we're saved, then agape love will be flowing through us. It'll be flowing through us in the way that we love God and the way that we love others. And it will flow in our lives more and more. Grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. Now that word back to the text here at Jude where he says, may grace, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Even the word multiplied is passive. That's a passive verb. That means we don't generate mercy, peace, and love. They are all given to us by grace. We're recipients of mercy, peace, and love by grace. You know what? I think sometimes our good intentions can get in the way of God's action to give us mercy, peace, and love. If we try to produce those things ourselves, we're just making a mess. And I think our problem sometimes is that we get in a hurry. We get saved. I know when y'all got saved, immediately you said, I want to be like George. Y'all didn't say that? <laughs> no, you didn't say that, but you did say, when you got saved, God help me not be like George. No, amen. Who said amen over there? Ushers. <laughs> no, when, you got, when we got saved, we, we fell in love with Jesus Christ. And man, I want to be just like him. And then I read about Paul. Oh, I want to be just like him. Now, now the, the, stri- the beaten with stripes and the wrecked shipwreck, I don't want any of that. But all the other good stuff, I want to be just like Paul. I want to be just like Jesus. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's grace upon grace. Who does the action? Who makes it happen? Jesus Christ makes it happen. You don't make it happen. He, he, he preserves you. He makes, you're the eternal object of his love. And so he's the one in charge of giving you the grace, mercy, and peace that you need to be like him, more like him. And it comes over time, and it comes by faith. It doesn't come by our works. And I see people sometimes spinning their wheels. Oh, I'm going to be more loving, so I'm going to go out and do some loving things. And and what you find yourself doing, you've got this superficial love. You don't really love people, but you're out there involved in philanthropy, but you're absolutely accomplishing nothing for the kingdom of God. Because it's that supernatural love of God flowing through you that really ministers to other people. That's, that's, that's why Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, if you, have, if you feed the poor and you give your body to be burned and yet you have not love, it profits you nothing. I mean, you have to have love. 
And, and those things, as we grow, and that's why James says here, may mercy, peace, and then love be multiplied to you. Grace upon grace. May you receive more mercy, more peace, more love. And I know some of us, you know, have to ask ourselves at times, why don't I seem to have the peace of God? Why am I not more loving? Why don't I love like the Apostle Paul? Why don't I love like Jesus Christ loved? Why am I so unloving? I mean, why do things seem so dead spiritually? Why? Well, there's a little word that needs to be added in, in, to the New King James text because of the mood of this, this verb multiply. And I'm not going to get into that, what the mood is and all of that kind of stuff. But it should have the word may. That's not in the Greek, but the mood dictates the word may. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, if the word may is there, that implies that there's a condition. In other words, I want mercy, peace, and love in my life, and it may be multiplied to me. How do I get it multiplied to me? Well, there is a condition. It's the same condition. It's the only condition that Christians ever have to meet. It's the only condition. It's the only condition. One word. What, what do I have to do if I, I'm going to have those things? I have to believe. I have to have faith. I have to put my trust totally in Jesus Christ's mercy, in his recipe for my life, if I'm going to have more mercy, peace, and love. You know, and it all begins with mercy. And how do we receive mercy? We receive mercy by faith. We quit trying to preserve ourselves. We quit trying to act like we're loving when we're really not loving. You know what? You got to get on your knees and say, Lord, I'm unloving. Give me the grace, the mercy to be more loving. Lord, I don't have peace. If I go out and try to make peace, I end up trying to find peace in all the wrong places, and I have no peace. I have nothing but turmoil. And if you have turmoil in your life, it doesn't mean you're saved. It means that that peace is not being multiplied in your life because you're trying to create the peace instead of trusting God's mercy for the peace. You know, the longer I'm saved, the more my prayer is the prayer that Michael W. Smith sings in that song, Lord, have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy on me. I don't deserve your goodness, Lord. But multiply your mercy in me so that I can be more loving. So that I can have more peace. It's God who's going to give you that love. It's God who's going to give you that peace. Because we receive mercy, peace, and love by faith. And they're the ingredients that God uses, or the spices he uses, to preserve our souls. He mixes those together by the power of his Holy Spirit so that mercy, peace, and love are multiplied 
in our life. And if, if by faith, by faith, we let him do what he desires to do in us, when he's done, we're going to be infinitely better tasting to him and to the world and to ourselves, infinitely better than my grandma's pickled peaches. <laughs> A lot of us are just pickled right now. We want to be taste really, really good. Let God do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you that our salvation, our sanctification, our glorification is all your work. We are the recipients of your work. Lord, we just ask that you give us more of your mercy by faith, Lord, we ask that. We believe you will so that we have more peace and we have more love and we have more power to be the good tasting people you want us to be, Lord, so that we can win others to Jesus Christ. We just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you in the name of our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.